Will you turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 today. Before I read, I just want to say a word of introduction on the passage and why we're doing it. We've just been through the book of Ruth and read the whole story of Ruth, and from Ruth comes, Ruth and Boaz comes Obed, and from Obed comes Jesse, and from Jesse comes David. And so this concept of Jesse being the father of the kings from from whom Jesus eventually comes is is one that carries through and that's the concept that the prophet Isaiah writing some hundreds of years later in a time of difficulty a time of warfare around the nation of Israel and, and of danger And Isaiah is writing the first 40 chapters of his letter, 39 chapters of his letter, really as a sign of warning, not just to the people of Israel, but to all kinds of nations around there, warning them of the dangerous place that they're standing, particularly as they're rebelling against God and doing their own thing and and, um, and interspersed between these warnings are messages of hope. Now, two in particular jump out, stand out, and those are Isaiah chapter 9 and Isaiah chapter 11. And here's the reason why. Let me give an example. Well, actually, let me read it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll tell you why those two stand out. Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them the cow and the bear shall graze their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like the ox the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. 
In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that the remains that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Isaiah, other place, says the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God stands forever. Let me pray. Father, may the words of my mouth now and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Be helpful for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just going to wait for that plane to go. Anyone who's been around Parkside for a while knows that I'm not usually a three-point sermon kind of guy, but today's sermon is a three-point sermon, so here's the rough outline. The shoot, the rule, and the root. The shoot, the rule, and the root, particularly of Jesse, the shoot of Jesse, the root of Jesse. Not so much the rule of Jesse, but you can apply that as well. Let me start with the uh, shoot of Jesse. Now, i got to make a confession Mandy kind of outed me on social media here recently, so I'm just going to open it up and say this. I am a fan of British royalty. I don't buy tabloids. I don't want to promote that, but I will read the articles when I come across them, and I'm fascinated by a monarchy that exists today that still has some influence and yet is completely subject to the rule of the people, essentially. It's nothing like monarchies of the past. And I don't delight in the drama of the family and the difficulties that they go through that sometimes they put themselves through. I can't imagine the stresses of that kind of family life. It's interesting, isn't it, that when we look at that particular family, we see a queen who has been Uh, amazingly agile and able to to roll with all kinds of punches. And And then we see a son who seems to have fumbled the ball over and over again, who's destined to be the next king. You have to look at families like that and say, is there much hope when a child is born into the family? I think for most of us, it has diminished. All of us are, I know you guys are some, to some degree fans of royalty, even though you won't admit it. You follow the stories and you know exactly what I'm talking about. I choose illustrations that are familiar because they're helpful. You look at that hope of a child being born, you say, is there really hope? But for the ancient world, in the ancient world, when a new child was born, who was destined to be king, there was an expectation for that. Oftentimes that expectation was that he would continue on and improve upon the work of a a father. Oftentimes there was hope that the new king would be better than the present king, correcting the heirs of the father. 
our exa example of the royalty isn't completely oblivious because I think many people look at Prince William as being a hopeful type of monarch. And I hope in using this illustration, you can appreciate that all illustrations fall short at some degree. And so we're not looking at them as the examples, but the example of both low expectation and high expectation can be seen in just one family of royal monarchs. And the hope of something emerging that would be good permeates our life just as it did in the ancient times, the hope of something good in the future, the hope of something better keeps us going. One of the commentators I read called the hope that Isaiah speaks of as an undated hope. Isaiah writes all kinds of things that seem like they're anachronistic, out of time, He's writing at a time when Judah, the southern kingdom where the kings of David are reigning, still will continue to reign for some time, over a hundred years before Judah falls, even though the Assyrians to the north are at the gate of the northern kingdom, Israel, and threatening the southern kingdom, Judah, as well. Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant who will come and bring this hope. And he's speaking very clearly about the hope of Jesus. And both Isaiah 9 and 11, early on in his letter, have this in common. They speak of a son who would be born, who would bring this type of hope. The son of a king, the son of David. Not the immediate son of David, but a further down the road, descendant of David, and he's referred to as the stump of Jesse, or from the stump of Jesse, the shoot should come, a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. The kings weren't even gone yet, but Isaiah had written them off as if they were essentially gone and looking to the new hope of a new king that he calls a shoot. One of the things I've been doing through the season of Advent is to record a, a few two-minute videos, some of them different lengths each day, um, associated with a, a reading schedule that we have, have used in our family called the Jesse Tree. And the Jesse Tree, a lot of versions of them out there, it tells the story of redemption, the history of God's redeeming a people through, starting with Genesis 1, and culminating in the birth of Jesus. The reason for the name of the Jesse tree comes from Isaiah 11 in this, from the stump of Jesus, or stump of Jesse, comes this shoot, which is a king that the people had hoped for. And Isaiah 11 describes some of what that hope will be. If you haven't watched those videos, you can find them on Facebook and Instagram. Some of them are better than others. You can go look at them if you want to. 
but you'll hear some redundant things in this. The shoot from the stump of Jesse gives hope. Look with me if you're in a Bible or if you're in your phones. Look with me just back at Isaiah chapter 10. And right before this prophecy that begins in Isaiah 11 is recorded these words, He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. This picture of the felling of a forest, the felling of trees, the destruction of nations by trees decimated and laid bare is what precedes this prophecy of this shoot coming out of the tree. It's not just that a tree has been cut down in the forest and all the other trees are around it and this is coming out. It's a picture of desolation in the forest among the people. And out of this desolation, this dryness, this emptiness comes this shoot. Out of what seemed dead, Ezekiel speaks of dry bones coming back to life in a similar way. That's the hope that Isaiah is presenting that is coming from God that would come from this future king, even in the time when most of the kings during Isaiah's time of prophesying were awful. The hope of a king saving them had died. It was kind of like the hope, I'll just go ahead and say it, the hope of Charles bring, bringing restoration to the nation of, of, uh, of, of Great Britain, of England. The hope was gone that the ruling class would be able to save them. But Isaiah comes and he reminds them that the Lord has promised that he would do this and raise up a descendant of David who would rule not just for a little bit and not just with a little good, but who would rule forever and be completely good. And there's a problem in this ruling that everybody there would have seen and understood and everybody today understands as well. And that is that no human being can possibly meet all of those descriptors. No one can measure up. Even King David himself didn't measure up. And one of the first qualifications that he gives or descriptions of this king that is given to us is that he would be indwelled by the Spirit, capital S Spirit. The Spirit, a particular Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord would inhabit him. And then it goes on to repeat multiple times what this Spirit brings. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, which is a Spirit of ruling, a Spirit of governance, it refers to an effective governing of the people, these two terms in particular. And all of the people would have heard this, and like many of you, immediately you think, what king depicts wisdom and understanding? Of course, it's Solomon. And that was intended that this would be a king that is wise and understanding like Solomon was. But it's not just of wisdom and understanding. It's also a king who is powerful and mighty in battle. The spirit of counsel and might refers to a military strategy and strength. And in particular, all of the people would have gone immediately, their minds, to King David. Who, of course, conquered many and dis displayed all kinds of power and might over many who were more seemingly or should be more powerful than him. And then it repeats of refrain that's over and over through this passage at the spirit of the knowledge 
and the fear of the Lord. And it repeats that, verse 3, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Later it says that that knowledge of the Lord would fill the lands or fill the sea to its brim, to its fullness. And that knowledge of the Lord refers more to the just refers to more than just an intelligence or even understanding of who God is and what his word says. The phrase, the knowledge of the Lord, means that people are living in the way that God has called them to live. They don't just have a knowledge, a head knowledge, but the, the knowledge of the Lord, especially when it's combined with the fear of the Lord, means that that knowledge and that understanding of who God is has transformed their lives so that it transforms the way that they live. It describes what in the Hebrew mindset is described as shalom, that we translate to peace. But it's a broader concept than just peace in the absence of war. It's a fullness of living where people are able to love one another and live in harmony with one another in service of one another, not out of fear of one another, but of a fear that enables and empowers us to live for others. And the question that comes up in this, this, this fear Many people, it's one of the most common questions I get. The question of fear is, why would God call us to live in any kind of fear? Doesn't the, the hymn, even the Christmas song that we've sung already, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, Born to Set the, Thy People Free, from our fears and sins release us? Shouldn't we be released from all of our fears? Why should we fear God? And it's a good question. It's an appropriate question. And the answer to this is that just as all of us will serve something, Bob Dylan famously said, everybody's going to serve something. Just as all of us are going to serve something, all of us also are going to fear something. All of us will fear something. And we have a choice to make as human beings. We have a choice of whether we're going to fear things that are going to enslave us or whether we're going to fear things, the only thing, and that is God that can release us from that slavery. The fear of the Lord takes two forms. Either Either we will stand in God's judgment, and that's where we're going with this next point of what the rule of the Lord looks like. If we have rebelled against God, if we reject God and we don't know his salvation, then to stand in the fear of God is to know that we are worthy of his judgment. Now, most of us, most human beings, knowing that that fear is, 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 is right, is accurate, that we deserve judgment for our sins, 
will choose to distract our minds by putting our fears in other things. And so we'll fear other things so that we don't have to pay attention to what we should fear, and that is the Lord. We have all kinds of distraction kind of strategies and techniques that we can employ in life that, that, that make us not think of what our responsibility is before God. So there is a very real fear of God that is a fear of danger. But that's if, that's if we're outside of God's care and protection and, and his knowledge. Let me just say the second thing. The second fear of the Lord comes from a place of comfort and of hope. And that fear comes from a knowledge that God is powerful and that power is power to save us and secure us. And so in that sense, a knowledge and a fear, a knowledge of the Lord and a fear of the Lord gives us the most stable and secure sense that we can have in any part of life. This is why Christians throughout the centuries have not feared even death itself in proclaiming the name of Jesus because they know that even death itself cannot separate us from the love of God. And this is the knowledge and the fear that, the, that, that Isaiah is speaking of, that this servant would operate out of. This king, a descendant of David, would operate out of, and of course it describes the hope that Jesus has that would secure him and empower him to go to even death on the cross. One of the most profound questions, statements in all of Scripture is Jesus when he's on the cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the question has to be asked, why would Jesus, the Son of God, ask this question and even wonder if God had truly forsaken him? And the answer is that in that moment, as he went to the cross and hung on the cross, Jesus was for the only time in his life, first time and only time in his life, experiencing what we experience as sinners before God, and that is the absence of God's calming presence, power, and security. Jesus became sin. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might receive the righteousness of Christ. Jesus became sin at that point, and for the first and only time in his life, he felt the first type of fear. For even though he was still fully God and even though he still has fully human and even though he has power to overcome this, he set aside that power for a time and subjected himself to the judgment of God, to even death on a cross so that we could be saved. Our second point is the rule of this king. The shoot of Jesse, the rule of this king. And Isaiah is giving us more description of not just who this king is, 
that was going to come and what he was indwelled with being the spirit, but what he was going to do. Some of this language, again, is foreign language for us. But when you read verse 5, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The translation for us, modern day, means that he put on his workout clothes. Or more specifically, he put on his battle fatigues. He wasn't in his dress uniform. He wasn't in his full suit ready for the courtroom now. He was ready for battle. He was ready for action. And this king, this shoot of Jesse, this expected king was not going to be a king simply of words. He wasn't going to be a king who just sat on the throne. He wasn't going to be a king with direction. He was going to be a king who went out and fought the battle alongside others. Even better than that, he went out and led the battle so that others could follow behind him. And in that, he was a type of David who famously went and fought the giant Goliath. And what happens after the battle Everybody else follows David. Jesus wins the defining battle. He fights the defining battle, but he calls all of us to come and fight, follow him in the battle. He has won the battle, and yet we are called to participate in that battle. So he's not just, he's not just ready and dressed for battle. He's also able to judge accurately. This is verse 4, verse 3 and 4. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity the meek of the earth. Famously, of course, still to this day, who are the people least likely to get fair judgment in a court of law? Of course, it's the ones who can't afford their own attorney. Try as they may, I know some public defenders. Try as they may, public defenders are famously still overworked and overwhelmed and oftentimes cannot adequately defend the poor. It's always been the case. We should do more to solve these problems. But the picture of what Jesus does is to judge accurately. Of course, signs of judgment in many cultures, signs of judging fairly has the the judge being a woman who depicts wisdom with a blindfold over her eyes. Showing that it's not a judging with prejudice based on what the eyes see or even what the ears hear because anyone who's been in a position to judge a case knows that there's always more to the story. There's always a a he said and she said. There's always an element of the truth that is brushed over, hidden by both sides in presenting the case. And so this picture of a king who would judge well extends to the courtroom as well. And presents a hope of somebody who would truly judge fairly. The rule would be a power, a king holding both a sword and a judge's gavel. 
And when we read about judges or kings in the Old Testament in particular, and also when we read about who Jesus is, always keep those two elements in mind. Our culture separates them wisely because of human limitations, but always keep both the sword and the gavel in mind for kings and judges in the Old Testament and for, and for Jesus. Verse 6 shows us a little bit of the result of this rule. Let me just read some of those words again. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Continues on. Predator with prey side by side and not being harmed. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. Let me pause there for just a minute and say that there are some questions in Scripture that we just aren't given an answer to. In the new heaven and the new earth where there is no more death, at least human death, will lions eat other prey anymore? It seems like probably not, but that is such a weird picture for us. And it's not necessarily given for us to understand how animals are going to exist together. It's a picture given of the extent of the peace, the shalom that I talked about earlier, and how far it goes. And where this goes next with verse 8, the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the wean child shall put his hand on the adder's den, is immediately meant to bring us back to the promise that was given in Genesis 3. When another serpent spoke to Eve and said, Surely you won't die when you eat this. And Adam and Eve both ate of that fruit, believing the serpent rather than God. And after that comes a number of curses on the serpent and on the woman and on the man and on all of their offspring. But in, in, in that is included this important promise, and that is, That a child, an offspring, an offspring of the serpent would strike the heel of an offspring of the human. And the foot of the human will crush the head, or the foot of the offspring of the human would crush the head of the offspring of the serpent. The serpent, of course, in that example is Satan himself. The word Satan, the name Satan, is a courtroom name. It means the accuser. This picture of the courtroom permeates throughout the Old Testament. We should understand that the courtroom is set up to judge rightly. The king judges rightly. We should not see ourselves merely as witnesses in the courtroom, nor as judges in the courtroom. As C.S. Lewis famously writes that the temptation of man today in its current state is to put God in the dock, meaning to put God on the, the stand 
to stand judgment and we put ourselves in the judge's seat. We as human beings need to understand that we are in the judgment seat until God declares us righteous and takes us out of that. Satan is the accuser. He is constantly accusing us, but the testimony of Jesus when we are in him, when we have trusted in him, declares us, declares you innocent. And you have been freed of that. And so when Satan, when the snake is seen, not all snakes are representations of Satan, by the way. Not all snakes are bad. We don't need to go kill snakes because they're Satan. In fact, I'm a fan of caring for snakes and, and, uh, and they're beautiful animals. We've seen a number of them in recent years. They can be dangerous. But this whole section, verse 6 to verse 8, is meant to press the notion of peace further and further and saying even the predator and the prey are going to sit together. Peace goes that far, but it says it's going to go even further than that. And that is the symbol of this evil, the serpent, not Satan himself, but the serpent, the animal is going to be able to play side by side by the child. Because Jesus has crushed the head of Satan himself, the true accuser. And it presses down even onto the infant child and the wean child and the baby snake. Did you catch that? It says the adder's den, the adder's nest, the place where the baby snakes are. If you've been out in the wilderness, you know that the most dangerous of the rattlesnakes to be bit by, most dangerous of most snakes to be bit by is a juvenile snake because it doesn't know how to control its venom yet. And so the picture that Isaiah, the picture that Isaiah is painting for his readers that God is giving is that the hope of this child who is going to be born is going to press down to every level of creation and reconcile those things together so that there will be no more death so that the child the children of the people and the children of the of the adder or the serpent can dwell together And the remaining question of this that I presented earlier with the shoot and the rule and the root is how is it possible that anybody can do this? How is it possible that any human descendant of David, King David, any human being can possibly do all of these things, accomplish all these things and the answer is given in coded form in verse 10 surely the readers of Isaiah would have been confounded by this and probably most of you like me read right over this and it doesn't even occur to you did you catch this in verse 10 in that day the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples 
Before it was talking about the shoot, the thing that comes up. Now we've gone to the root, but this isn't the first time that a root was mentioned. If you go back to verse one, it says, Go back to verse one, do you see it? There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then in verse 10, in that day, the root of Jesse, the shoot clearly is pointing to the coming king, which we know is Jesus Christ himself. But the root of Jesse, well, what is that? Is it Obed? Is it Boaz and Ruth? Of course, the root of Jesse is God himself, who made Adam and Eve after his own image. The root of Jesse is saying that this human king is also going to be God himself, of course, not made clear until Jesus comes and he makes these claims like he did in the Luke 5 passage we read from earlier. He says, your sins are forgiven. What does that mean? Everybody bristles. It means Jesus is saying, I am God. I have authority to forgive sins. In that day, not just the shoot of Jesse, but also the root of Jesse, God himself is going to stand as a signal for the peoples. God had told them over and over, I am your king. And the people said, we want a human king. And God had in his plans that a human king would ultimately be their savior. But in the same way, in the same way that Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers, God turns what the people intended for evil and uses it for his good and presents to us Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully human. As we read about last week in the Nicene Creed, In that day, the root of Jesse, who, will, who, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Read back through this, the resting place. The resting place is the place where we can dwell with this type of security and shalom that we've talked about. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was said to dwell, same word. A place where holiness permeates, extends. Holiness means that we are people of action, living out this both knowledge and fear of the Lord. And this thing happens in the book of Acts. And the pictures that are described of the people who had gathered to hear the apostles explain the gospel describes people from all kinds of nations coming and hearing the gospel and believing. The apostles are speaking in different languages, the languages of these nations, these nations that are listed out in verse 11. 
Some of them sound unfamiliar, but they're really pretty familiar places. In that day, verse 11, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, which was the nation that was threatening from the north, the superpower, and also from Egypt, that was another superpower threatening from the southeast, and from Pathros, which was another region within what we call modern-day Egypt, and from Cush, which is modern-day Ethiopia, also to the south, and from Elan and Shinar, which are regions to the east, which are known as Babylon in different parts of times of history, and then Hamath, which is to the far north, and even to the coastlands of the sea, meaning the islands that are set out in the, to the west in the Mediterranean Sea. In that day, we don't know the date, it is an undated hope that is fulfilled in the coming of Jesus and the declaration of the apostles and some 3,000 people believed and then many more continued to believe and then they went back to their homes and they proclaimed the gospel and still more believed. In that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal for the peoples. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, shown to be God himself, victorious over sin, shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious and his resting place isn't in the city of jerusalem today his resting place is in heaven with god and he says he goes to prepare a place for us and the promise is not just that we'll be taken away from this world and escape all the badness the promise is that a new heaven and a new earth will emerge and heaven will be bridged with earth and in those places the fullness of God will dwell and his shalom shall rule forever. This is the hope of Christmas that is found in a little child that is born with royal expectations. Not Prince Charles, or even Prince William. But the prince that is spoken of in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. For to us a child is born... To us his son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Amen. King Jesus, we praise you as the risen King, born to set your people free. And we ask that you would equip us as your people to follow you, victorious in battle over sin and death. And that in this week of Christmas, we would look not only at that child was, who was born, but in the hope that has been accomplished in your life in death and resurrection. And that we would be ambassadors of your peace looking to the hope, the undated hope of your coming again. We ask in your powerful name. Amen.